First Peter chapter five, verse one. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Amen. In our study of sin and judgment in the New Testament, sometimes we fail to recognize the importance of this subject. The importance of this subject has to do with not only the, what we ought to think about sin and judgment in our own life, but actually in relation to who God is first. Who is God? Who is the God of the Bible? Who is the God of the New Testament? Because if we have a wrong understanding of God, the God even of the New Testament, who is the same as the God of the Old Testament, same in attributes and same in person, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, from Genesis to Revelation, the same God with the same attributes, same characteristics in both Testaments, the same. What if, for example, if we misunderstand the attributes of God, what if, for example, we were to preach and someone were to say, God is unholy. He is not a holy God. Some religions believe that. Not within Christianity, not formally usually, will anybody say God is unholy. But outside of Christianity, some of the pagan gods are unholy. In the pantheon of gods they live, the males and the females, the gods and the goddesses live an unholy, immoral, sexually immoral life. They even steal from each other, they cheat each other, they lie to each other. There's always 
palace intrigue going on in the pantheon of pagan gods. They believe their gods are unholy. Some of them are unholy. What if we were to say that? Would that not be blasphemous and idolatry? Because the Bible clearly says so. Even in our letter, 1 Peter 1, 13-17 says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. God is saying, He Himself is holy, therefore we should be holy. What also, if we were to distort what the grace of God is? Is this not one of the trump cards that people use in the New Testament? God's a God of love, therefore He would never say this or He would never do that. He would never be in this way or that way. Or the word grace. Grace is also a trump card. Meant to silence every critic, every argument. Show some grace. God's a God of grace. Well, he does mention grace in this chapter. And in fact, when he comes to verse 12, he mentions true grace. True grace. If there is true grace, there must be false grace. If there is false grace, then we shouldn't believe it. Somebody is believing it. And whoever opposes it believes in true grace. That's why he's talking about speaking of true grace in verse 12. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Which means whoever has a false grace does not have true grace. And therefore he doesn't comprehend what grace is. He does not know what the grace of God is. If he does not know what the grace of God is, how can he be saved? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. That's the grace of God. But if he doesn't comprehend it properly, then he is not worshiping the true God of true grace. He's worshiping an idol. Therefore, if we worship an idol, whatever our misconceptions are of God, if we worship an idol, we're worshiping a false god, and therefore our souls are in jeopardy. Our souls are in danger of going to hell. It's not something to take lightly. It's something that we ought to be very serious about understanding correctly. Who is God? What are his attributes? What is his identity? Is he the God of the Bible? Is he the God of the Old and the New Testaments? One God, same God. Or is he different? Is he a changing God, which would be another blasphemy and another idol? There are many ways in which men, even Christian men and even men in churches and even pastors, distort the true nature of God. Therefore, they distort the true nature of man, the true nature of salvation, the true means and way of salvation, the afterlife, heaven and hell. Everything gets distorted if we distort who God is. We cannot do so. That's why we have undertaken this series and why the series is so important because any casual, any proper, simple, honest reading of the New Testament would point out these truths. The problem is, it is done very little in our world today. This kind of careful contemplation of these truths is not practiced, not taught, not believed very much these days. 
Now, in our final chapter of First Peter chapter 5, there are two main, or, or three main sections, two main sections and one closing section. The first is verses 1 to 5, where he exhorts the elders and the young men to practice humility toward each other and to practice this humility which leads to unity. In the midst of persecution, it is easy for people to point the finger at each other and say, well, if you had done it this way, then you wouldn't have been persecuted. If you had done it that way, then you would have been spared. And to point, when pointing the finger without true humility and understanding of Scripture in dealing with the persecution, there is the possibility of division and conflict in the local church. To avoid it, he says, to do the will of God humbly, both the old and the young together, do the will of God humbly, and you will please the Lord, the chief shepherd. Then verses 6 to 11, 6 to 11 are also exhorting us to humility in the face of opposition and the most intense or severe of our opponents is the devil himself. Humility in the midst of persecution, even when the devil is using other people, the real enemy is the devil behind them. That's in verses 6 to 11. We'll also notice in verses 6 to 11, there is a similarity to James chapter 4. There is a similarity to James chapter 4, particularly from James 4, verses 5 to 10. James chapter 4, verses 5 to 10. Many similar words, similar phrases, similar exhortations, similar warnings are presented. Then the final part is verses 12 to 14, his conclusion and his farewell to the saints. Verse 1. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. He first, before he exhorts or tells us the content of his exhortation, which is in verses 2 and following, he says, shepherd the flock of God. Before that, he has an introduction as to his authority before saying so. He says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you. He exhorts the elders in the churches as not a bystander, not a spectator, but notice, as a fellow elder. He also is an elder. Though he's also an apostle, he's also an elder of the churches. And the local elders and he have this commonality. Therefore, they should have one mind. They should have the same judgment on the subjects that he addresses so that they all agree. 1 Corinthians 1.10 He then calls himself a witness of the sufferings of Christ. By witness, he's saying he was an eyewitness. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, he also says that he was an eyewitness. He actually saw 
the sufferings of Christ. 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. He was a witness, an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. That's another qualification he has. Further, verse 1, a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. The glory that he is to experience is the same glory we are to experience. The apostle, who is an elder and a witness, is going to be a partaker with us. We're all going to be in heaven together. This is what he means by the glory that is to be revealed. Notice the sequence of events. First, there is suffering, just as Christ suffered. He told us earlier in 1 Peter 2, 21-25, that we follow his example, follow in his footsteps and suffer along with him. 1 Peter 2.21-25, he said the same thing. Here he's telling us about the sufferings. Then the glory, which is the proper sequence. Romans 8.17 also says that. Romans 8.17, that we will be glorified with him if we suffer with him. So the suffering has to be first, Romans 8.17, the glory second. Peter tells us the same. It is suffering now, glory later. Those who have glory now have suffering later. But we who have suffering now have glory later. And the later glory is an eternal glory, which he mentions in verse 10. Eternal glory, verse 10. His eternal glory in Christ. What's better? To live for the world to come? and suffer now? Or have glory now, have the adoration of men now, the praise of men now, and then the judgment condemnation of God later? It's better to suffer now for Christ and the glory later, which Christ will grant to us. Continuing to verse 2. Now the exhortation. What is the exhortation? Shepherd, the flock of God among you, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Shepherd the, church, the flock of God. The pastor is called a pastor. The original word, and even in English the word pastor, has to do with a shepherd. It's a synonym of the word shepherd. To pastor or to shepherd, we're talking about the same thing, just different words, synonymous words. The pastor is called a pastor because he is the local shepherd of the sheep, of the local sheep. The universal shepherd of all the sheep is the chief shepherd, verse 4, the chief shepherd who is Christ. He was also mentioned as our shepherd in 1 Peter 2.25, he's called the shepherd and guardian of your souls. 1 Peter 2.25. He is the supreme, the great, the chief shepherd. Those who pastor, the elders who pastor, 
are to shepherd the flock of God among you in the local church. What does it therefore mean to shepherd? Well, the scripture tells us in various places. We may note, we may note that in John 21, Jesus exhorted Peter to tend his flock, to feed his sheep. And this in the scripture has to do with feeding them with the words of truth, feeding them with the Bible, teaching them the scriptures. Teaching them the scriptures, which is assuming that they are also modeling it, as it says in verse 3, examples to the flock. But primarily the goal or the duty of the shepherd, the pastor, is to teach the flock. Teach them. He must be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Titus 1.9 He must be able to teach. 1 Timothy 3.2 Able to teach. If we look at the list of the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, we will note that most of the qualities are character qualities. The one basic functional duty, functional quality, is teaching. Or we might say exhorting in sound doctrine and refuting those who contradict. That's his ministry. That's the goal to shepherd the flock of God among you like that. Pastors who do not do this are not properly feeding their sheep. They're actually exploiting their sheep. That's why he mentions in the same verse, not for sordid gain. Not for sordid gain. Well, what would sordid gain be? If the pastor is functioning like a hireling. If the pastor is functioning like Someone who is just a placeholder, just a placeholder, or even a puppet of the rich men who are the puppeteers in the local church. The rich, influential men who are the puppeteers in the local church. He should not be a puppet of the rich, and he should not be derelict in his duty of teaching the word. If he has lots of sugar and cotton candy, if that's what he is preaching, and that is the diet of the people, they are not going to be fed properly. He would be showing himself to be in the ministry for sordid gain. Because if you feed the people like that the wrong way, then the church will grow by leaps and bounds. 10 today, 20 next day, 50 next month, and then within a year you have 100 to 200 people. And it balloons from there. This is the way the average pastor or church planter, this is the way they want the church to grow, that fast. But are those people really being fed the word 
of Christ? Or are they being fed the words of men? So who is really shepherding the flock of God? We also note that it's the flock of God according to the will of God. Verse 2, flock of God, will of God. The flock is not ultimately the local pastors. He shouldn't be boasting about, look at my church, look at my people, look what I did. He would be then like Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4, or the harlot in Hosea chapter 2. Me, myself, mine, I. No, it is God's flock according to God's will. The glory goes to him, not to the man. The pastor who is seeking a petty kingdom in his locality is in the ministry for sordid gain. He doesn't have a voluntary and an eager attitude toward feeding the flock of God. A voluntary and eager attitude. It says voluntarily with eagerness. That's the way it should be. Why would he not love to explain the truth to the people? Why would he not love answering their questions? Why would he be ill-equipped to do so? Why would he be in the ministry and ill-equipped to do those things? He shouldn't be in the ministry. He should have, over the years, been studying the truth with such an eagerness to proclaim it and explain it to the people that he's happy to talk about the things of God. He should have the attitude of Christ in Luke 2, when Christ was only 12 years old. He spent hours and hours and hours in the temple with the rabbis, with the teachers, discussing the things of God with them. That should be the way the man of God is. Not doing his one-hour duty on the Lord's Day and then disappearing, exits, uh, exit stage left. That's the way they are. And many mega pastors are that way. They show up right on time and they depart right on time or they'll show up right before their sermon. Right before their sermon, they'll, they'll show up. That's a fraud. He's in it for sordid gain. <clears throat> okay, the true ministry, that's in verse 2, and the true attitude toward the ministry. Then verse 3, some humility nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Lording it over or domineering the flock, not treating them gently and kindly, not feeding them what they need to have, but exploiting them and lording it over them, there are many times when the people of the church will walk up to the pastor and say, Pastor, I've been reading the Bible and I have this question. They say, well, I'm busy right now. I can't answer it. Or just believe. Just believe. You just need to believe. Have faith. And then he walks away. Well, what's he doing? In a sense, he's lording it over them because he's telling them just do it, just believe, just 
forget it. Don't be curious about the Word of God. Just go on your way. But wouldn't a kind and gentle pastor be explaining it to them? What about withholding the food from the sheep? If he withholds the food from the sheep, aren't the sheep going to be forced to go here and there and be very hungry all the time? They're being forced to go here and there because the shepherd is stronger than the sheep. So they have to do whatever the shepherd says, yet they're starving. They're hungry. No, instead he should be an example to the flock. An example to the flock. The pastor himself or the elder himself should be this example. First, in 1 Timothy 4.16, the apostle says, pay close, 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do so, you will ensure salvation, both for yourself and for those who hear you. When he is paying close attention to himself and his teaching, he is ensuring his own salvation and the salvation of his hearers. That's how he's leading by example. When Ezra, Ezra 7.10, Ezra the scribe and priest, when he was teaching the people, what did Ezra do to lead by example? Ezra 7.10, For Ezra set his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. First he studied, he sought the law of the Lord, he practiced it himself, and then he taught Israel to do the same. So they would have seen as a precursor the way he studied, what he knew, how he lived, and sought to emulate him when he taught them to do the same. That's the way it should be with the local pastor. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd is obviously Christ. All of the local shepherds or pastors or elders are under shepherds. They are under him and under his authority. But when he appears, and what, do we, what does Peter mean by this appearance? He's talking about the return of Christ. He mentions it in chapter 1 and throughout the letter, but right here as well. The appearance of Christ is the return of Christ. And when he returns, what do we receive? The unfading crown of glory. On the earth... When athletes compete, they receive a fading crown. It won't last forever. Their crown won't last forever. But in our case, our crown will last forever because it has to do with eternal life, eternal glory, from the Lord of glory, the chief shepherd himself, Christ. Christ who is called the Lord of glory 1 Corinthians 2.8 He is the Lord of glory 
He will grant us glory when we see his glorious presence upon his return. This is a forward, upward, heavenward, eternal perspective. Not being obsessed and consumed with the world and what men think of us, but what Christ thinks of us and what he will think of us when he appears. Now, an exhortation, verse 5, for the young men. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The younger men are likewise exhorted to practice humility, and how will they show their humility? By subjection. Be subject to your elders. Just as children to parents, wives to husbands, right here, young men to the old men, the younger men to the elders, in the same way. Of course, in chapter 2, 2, 13 to 20, he mentions this in relation to other relationships, citizens to their own government and slaves to their masters. This is the way true humility is practiced, being subject to those who are of a higher authority than oneself. And all should be clothed with this humility toward one another. Humility is not just for a few. It is for everyone to practice. Why? He gives a reason why. Why is humility to be practiced by everyone. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do we want the grace of God? Do we want more of the grace of God? Then we have to be humble. If we want God to oppose us, to reject us, to condemn us, then persist in pride. Whoever's thinking clearly would not want to persist in pride, but humble himself before the Lord. The last part of verse 5 is quoting Proverbs 3.34. Proverbs 3.34. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Continuing with humility, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Humility under the mighty hand of God must be now. Glory is later, as he says here in verse 6, exaltation. He may exalt you at the proper time. At the current time, we're all not extremely wealthy. We're all not kings and queens on the earth. People are not calling us Honorable so-and-so, your majesty so-and-so. We don't have those kinds of, of greetings or commendations. We don't have that. We have humility. But in the spiritual world, this is all the more true of all of us, that in the spiritual world, just as we are lowly in this life physically, we ought to be lowly in this life spiritually. 
because the time of exaltation is later. We become kings later. We're not right now, but later we will rule and reign with Christ forever. Not now. Meantime, he says in verse 7, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. This is Psalm 55, 22. Verse 7 is from Psalm 55, verse 22. 55, 22. Meantime, between our conversion and the time of glory, the time we see Christ, how should we deal with the trials of life? the difficulties of life. He says, casting all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. Casting all your anxiety upon Him is in accordance with humility. If we are not casting all our anxiety upon Him, then we are being proud. Is that not what He's saying in verses 6 and 7? Verse 7 completes the sentence. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Along with that exhortation is casting all your anxiety upon him. If we do not cast all our anxiety upon him, are we not being proud? Are we not seeking current exaltation? When he says, at the proper time we'll have exaltation, but not right now. Right now we have sufferings, persecutions, afflictions, Anxiety, so all anxiety cast on him because he cares for you. If we humble ourselves and cast our anxiety upon him, we believe he cares for us. If we do not cast our anxiety upon him, we don't believe he cares for us. Is that not the plain and simple way to understand the passage. If we're not casting our anxiety on the Lord, then we don't believe the Lord cares for us. He'll take care of it. And we cannot stay in a state of unbelief and pride. Verse 8, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. A sober spirit. The opposite of soberness is drunkenness. When we are drunk, then we don't know what's going on around us. We are unalert. He told us in verse chapter 4, verse 7, the same. Chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be of sound judgment and Sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Sober spirit. Chapter 1, chapter 1 and verse 13. 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If we are sober, then we are able to be on the alert. 
those who are unsober or drunk, intoxicated, cannot be on the alert. They'll be sleepy. They'll be crazy in their thinking and in their words and actions. They won't be on the alert. We're to be on the alert. Jesus said this many, many times for us to be on the alert. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And verse 42. 24, 42 to 44. Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you be ready too, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. All of us be on the alert. There's another reason. Verse 8, 1 Peter 5, 8. Why are we to be sober and on alert? Verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Do we remember when Satan presented himself before the Lord in the book of Job, Job chapters 1 and 2? In Job chapters 1 and 2, a couple of times Satan presented himself before the Lord in reference to, in relation to Job because the Lord brought up Job to him. And when the Lord asked him, from where do you come? What was his answer both times? From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. He's roaming and walking, Satan, throughout the whole earth. And here too, He's doing this, he's on the prowl like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's our adversary, he's our enemy. He wants to destroy us. And he is a roaring lion. He's very, very hungry, very voracious. He's bloodthirsty. He wants our flesh. He wants, in a so to speak way. He wants the flesh of our soul. He wants to destroy our soul. He wants to put it out. That's the way the devil is. Then if we, if we were in the field, if we were in the wilderness, if we were in the field or in the wilderness and we knew that wild animals were there, is it good and right to be casual while we sit down, to be casual while we walk from place to place in that wilderness? No. We should be sober and on the alert because a wild animal might be just over the mound, just over the hill, or right behind us, and then pounce on us, unawares. The devil is like this. The devil is very sneaky, very scheming. It's like the Garden of Eden. He just shows up suddenly and starts engaging you. 
This is the way he is, therefore we must be on the alert and ready. Ready to do what? Verse 9. But resist him, firm in your faith. Resist the devil. Don't agree with him. Don't cry. Don't cower. Don't retreat. Resist him. Fight him. Remember, there is a verse in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 20. There was a mighty man, a warrior of David, who he killed two other men of the enemy, sons of Ariel, but he also killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Didn't he do that? And he's recorded in Scripture for being that physically courageous. Physically courageous. Well, what are we supposed to be spiritually? Spiritually courageous. Resist him firm in your faith. As Benaiah held his ground against the lion attacking him, we're supposed to hold our ground and resist the devil. Attack the devil. How? Use our, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Ephesians 6.17 The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's how we wield it. We wield it against him, against Satan. And Satan's not going to come, typically, 99 times out of 100 or 999 times out of 1,000. He's not going to come in a mysterious way, in a dream or a vision like that. He's going to come with our daily life and its circumstances and the people we encounter. He's going to come that way. That's how he works. He works in the world. He is called the God of this world, who blinds the minds of the unbelieving. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. So he's working through them in order to destroy us. Therefore, resist them, because they are tools of Satan. Verse 9 continues. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. This is against the carnal thought, woe is me. My, my circumstances are too difficult. I can't bear them. Nobody understands. Nobody's going through what I'm going through. He's saying here, we shouldn't have that attitude. He says, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. This would be similar to 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13. He continues in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But such as is common to man. That's the same as 1 Peter 5, 9. It's common to man. The things we face, the temptations we face are common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also. We're not alone. We have common sins, and together we overcome the common sins, God's way. Verse 10, 
And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you have suffered for a little while, then he speaks of glory. This is what we saw earlier in verses 1 to 5, particularly verse 4, verses 1 and 4. We suffer now, verses 1 and 4, we have glory later. He's saying the same in verse 10. We suffer now, we have glory later. Eternal glory in Christ. But notice in verse 10, he tells us how long we have to suffer. For a little while. A little while. This means that if we suffer for one hour, for one day, for 10 years, for 50 years, it's still a little while. It's still a little while compared to what? Eternity, because he compares it to eternity, because he says, to his eternal glory in Christ. It's just a little while now. It's better to suffer for 10, 25, 50 years right now, 100 years right now, however long we live. It's better to suffer now than to suffer for eternity. Infinity. Can't even imagine that. But who is with us? Meantime, he says in 10, the God of all grace. The God of all grace is with us. The God of all grace has endowed grace to us, therefore our conversion, therefore our justification, therefore our faith, therefore our repentance, therefore our conformity to Christ, therefore power to conform to Christ, therefore we are equipped by the Spirit of Christ and Word of Christ to conform to the image of Christ because the God of all grace is on our side. Who called you to His eternal glory in Christ. Which calling is in verse 10? Is this the general call to preach the Bible? Or is it the special, internal, specific, effective call? It's the effective call. It's the internal call. Because he says, He called you to His eternal glory in Christ. That means effectively, definitely, it's happening. It is. It will happen. Will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God is the source of our perfection, our confirmation, our strength, and our establishment. God is the source. Not ourselves, but God Himself. Working in us, working in us in His mighty way. That's why verse 11 says, To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. The dominion, the kingdom, belongs to Him forever because He's the one building the kingdom. We are participants in it, but we are not the craftsmen building the building, the ultimate ones. We're not the masons or the craftsmen building the building. He is, and the kingdom, he is the king. We are participants 
his helpers, which lasts how long? Forever and ever. That's much better than an earthly kingdom. Verse 12, the conclusion and farewell, 12 to 14. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This Silvanus is the Silvanus of the letters of Paul, such as in First and Second Thessalonians. At the beginning of those letters in the first verse, he mentions himself, Silvanus, and Timothy writing to the Thessalonians because this Silvanus had visited these places. He also was here a companion, a missionary companion and assistant to the apostle Peter. In the book of Acts, the shortened form of this name Silvanus is the name Silas, as we pronounce it. Silas in the book of Acts is the Silvanus in these letters of Thessalonians and Peter. It's the same faithful brother. He says in verse 12, For so our faithful brother, for so I regard him. Our faithful brother. When a faithful brother is commended, he's commended, why? So that the recipients regard him in like manner. If the Apostle Peter is regarding him that way, shouldn't we? Yes. Which is a lesson that when we commend one another, and it's to someone else, the third party should receive that commendation. If it's coming from a credible, reliable, honest source, a man of integrity, why doubt it? If the man of integrity knows it, then we should believe it. And when we have opportunity to interact with that individual, we should also regard the individual with esteem. It says also in 12, I have written to you briefly. I have written to you. Through Sylvanus, I have written to you. This is similar to the book of Romans, Romans 16. Romans 16, when the Apostle Paul used the, the hand or the pen of Tertius. Romans 16.22, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Tertius was the actual scribe for the letter to the Romans. Paul was the author who dictated to Tertius what he should write and confirmed it before it was sent. And the same here, Silvanus did so on behalf of Peter. This should not be anything new or shocking. In the book of Jeremiah, there are examples of this. In the book of Jeremiah, one prominent place is Jeremiah chapter 36, where it clearly says that there was a scribe who was an assistant to Jeremiah the prophet. And this man, Baruch, Baruch was the scribe and assistant to Jeremiah. Jeremiah would dictate to him, and Baruch would write at the dictation of Jeremiah and write on a scroll. 
Jeremiah chapter 36. This is not a new concept, it's not a new practice, and it should not surprise us nor alarm us. Of course, the skeptics of the Bible will say, look at this, Peter was such uh, uneducated and he was so backward and unable to write that he had Sylvanus write. And Peter didn't actually write these words, Sylvanus wrote these words. They come up with all of these ways to undermine trust in the Bible. No, that's not the case. Not the case at all. He wrote briefly to us. Why did he write briefly? And we may think that the Bible is a huge book, but it's really not. If we compare the Bible to some religions of the world, like Hinduism and Buddhism, their scriptures are so voluminous, you cannot carry their scriptures around. You can only carry a portion around, a small portion around. But they have volumes and volumes and volumes of sacred writings. False, of course, but they have their own sacred books. The Bible is written in order for what we must know to be on its pages. He wrote briefly so that we might know what is sufficient and essential for us to know. So we should know it. The worshipers of those other religions, if they read volumes and volumes and volumes of their religious books, their sacred books, can we not read the short Bible? especially the New Testament. The New Testament is only 23% of the words of the Bible. Yes, if we put the Bible together, all the words, or just do it by eyesight and with your hands, look at the Bible, put your finger on where the New Testament starts. The New Testament is not even not even one-fourth of the Bible. Can we not read all of the New Testament, at least, as Christians? First, it's hardly anything compared to other books and other religions. But we should be familiar with the whole. He says he's exhorting and testifying. Exhorting and testifying. Exhortation, which has both encouragement and admonishment, a warning, and he testifies. He testifies as a witness. Witness of what? A witness of what Jesus actually taught, what Jesus actually said. And he's testifying to the true grace of God. He has the true grace. The false teachers have a false grace. And what does that false grace entail? Well, if you're saved by grace then you're going to go to heaven. Don't worry about it. Everything else is behind you now. Just live a life of ease and pleasure. Just do as you please. Indulge. Live as you want. No. Peter, throughout this letter, has constantly said the opposite. He said, you shall be holy for I am holy. Did he not? Did he not say that I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain 
from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. 1 Peter 2, 11. 1 Peter 2, 11. And in 1 Peter 3, 17, For it is better if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. 1 Peter 3, 17. 1 Peter 4, 1 Peter 4, verses 3 to 4. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. He's clearly saying the true grace of God does not justify living in sin, walking in sin. No, that was in our past. No more do we walk in sin when we have the true grace of God. The true grace of God produces salvation and sanctification and glorification. The true grace of God produces that. When people deny the true grace of God, the way the Bible describes the grace of God, they're actually spiting God. They're actually spitting in the face of God. They're actually saying that the grace of God is a powerless grace. It's a weak grace feeble grace. And it's actually a grace that blesses sin. It's a grace that endorses my sin. Which would be an abomination. Which would mean they're worshiping an idol. Not the true God. Today's idol, actually not just today, in Exodus 32, today's idol, golden calf, Today's golden calf is worshiping around the golden calf of false grace. The golden calf of false grace. Everybody is eating and drinking and dancing, rising up to play around this golden calf. But what must we do? What are we attempting to do with this study? We're trying to be like Moses who tore down that golden calf, crushed it, and poured the dust into the water and made the sons of Israel drink that water. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get rid of the, the idols of the golden calves of the people. This is one such. False grace. We should stand firm in it and resist the false. 13, verse 13 now. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Your Bible may have a footnote, or if you use an old translation, it may say the church. That's because some of the manuscripts say church. But it's clear that he is speaking of the church. The church is sometimes called she, because the church is the bride of Christ. Well, The church is clearly in view. Those who were with the church where Peter was send greetings to all these other Christians in these other locations. Remember, 1 Peter 1.1 mentioned other places in Europe. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, meaning West Asia, Asia Minor in modern Turkey, 
and Bithynia. In these places, that's where he's writing or to whom he's writing. But he himself is in Babylon. Now, is Babylon the literal Babylon or figurative Babylon? Is it literal Babylon, which would be actually farther east of West Asia, farther east of the land of Israel, which would be in southern Mesopotamia, in modern uh, southern Iraq? Is that where he was, preaching there and establishing and building up the church there? Was he there literally or was he in Rome figuratively? Because it has been interpreted, such as in the book of Revelation, that Rome, the city of Rome, is called Babylon, or Babylon the Great, the Babylon the Great Harlot. That's what Rome is called. Which one is it? Is it literal Babylon or figurative Babylon? Those who want it to be figurative Babylon Rome want to say, like the Roman Catholics, they want to say that Peter was in Rome because he was the first bishop of Rome or first pope of Rome. They want that to be figurative or metaphorical Rome. The problem with that view, one, in and of itself there's no problem with it. The problem is they're trying to attach Peter with a long ministry there, but history does not know of Peter having a long ministry there. That's one number one. Number two, Babylon in the Bible is not a good name. It's not a good name in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. It's not a good name in the book of Daniel, the Babylonians. It's not a good name in the book of Revelation. Babylon, they're trying to say it's a good name because it signifies Rome, an auspicious place, a great place, a majestic place because that's where the first pope was. Well, it's contradictory. The metaphorical interpretation in and of itself is not impossible, but it is wrong for Roman Catholics to use it the way they do because it doesn't help their case. Historically, it doesn't help their case, and even biblically it doesn't because Babylon is always negative or almost always negative in the way it's used in the Bible. But it's likely that the literal is the case. Why? Because in 1 Peter, he's not writing in metaphorical terms. He's not writing in apocalyptic terms. He's not writing like if we were to read the book of Revelation, he's not writing in those ways. Or if we were to read the book of Zechariah, the last, or much of the book of Zechariah, or the last half of the book of Daniel, he's not writing like that. He's writing in straightforward terminology. Yes, he does have some figures of speech, but he's not writing in apocalyptic, mysterious ways like these other books just mentioned. Therefore, if we read it straightforwardly, we take it to be literal Babylon. And in history, from the time of the Babylonian exile, and after that, for centuries, there was a very strong and pure contingent of Jews and Judaism in Babylon because of the Babylonian captivity in 5. 86 BC. Because of that, there was this strong presence of Jews and Jewish religion and Jewish scriptures and Jewish commentaries 
in Babylon. In fact, one of the extra-biblical commentaries and explanations of the Bible and Jewish life is called the Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud. And that one is more revered than another one called the Palestinian Talmud. Palestinian meaning made in the land of Israel. The one from Babylon had more authority than the one in Palestine. More authority and more respect. So Peter would have gone as a missionary to Babylon to convert the Jews there and the church. So the church there is greeting the church in the rest of the areas where Peter's letter is received. Okay, the church greets, and also he says, my son Mark. Mark is mentioned in Acts 12, verse 12. This is John, who was also called Mark. Probably that name was adopted for two reasons. One, Mark is a Roman and Greek name, and it would have been more known as he went from place to place. It would have been, it would have been easier to identify as Mark. But also in the New Testament, we have John the Baptist, we have John the Apostle, and another John may confuse readers. So for these reasons, perhaps he's known as Mark. He's also my son. It is known, as it is right here, also in Acts chapter 12. He is with Peter, Acts 12, 12. He's with Peter. And outside of the Bible, he was known to be a disciple of Peter, a son of Peter in the, in the spiritual sense. Also, the book of Mark, outside of Scripture, the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. The book of Mark was written by Mark, but with the close supervision of the Apostle Peter. Mark wrote it, but it had Peter's background. He knew the, some of those things that happened there in the book of Mark because Peter himself was the eyewitness and Mark was the author of the book. The book of Mark has the authority of Peter behind it. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ Jesus. May we do so and have true humility and unity as we together strive to overcome sin and anticipate the return of Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.